0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Praise, Praise be, be
1: to Christ. Christ. Well, again, y'all, my name is uh, David Filson. I'm one of the pastors uh, at Christ Presbyterian Church. You'll uh, most often find me over at the Old Hickory location. I am not. Russ Ramsey, and I, I want to I kind of lay that out because a few weeks ago, I was, at, uh, I was over at the Old Hickory location, and, uh, and a lady in the hallway, and I don't know if she's here right now, but a lady in the hallway came up to me so uh, excitedly and says, oh, I'm so excited for you uh, getting to do the, the Cool Springs location and the church there. And, and here's the thing. She was so excited to meet Russ Ramsey. And, and I thought, um, I'll probably I'll, I'll let her know. I mean, we look alike, but I'm not, I'm not Russ Ramsey. But, but then I got kind of caught up in the moment of being Russ Ramsey. And uh, it started to feel kind of good to be, to be Russ Ramsey. And so uh, she said, you are Russ Ramsey. I said, yes, yes, I am. And, um, now, the reality is we, we both have salt and pepper hair. He has a little more pepper. I have a little more salt, but uh, I, I, did have to, I did have to let her down gently, and she was just crestfallen when I said, well, I'm actually not Russ. And she said, well, who are you? I said, well, I'm, one of, I'm one of the pastors here as well, but she was so excited, and, and I know you all are as well uh, to be here and what the Lord is doing, and, and again, uh, it's, it's a privilege to to be here in Russ's pulpit as he gets away for some, um, some much-deserved rest and vacation. You know, you heard the word read from the Gospel of John, and I love the Gospel of John. Uh, it was St. Augustine who lived from 354 to 430 who said of the Gospel of John that it is, um, it's deep enough that an elephant can swim in it, but, but it's accessible or shallow enough that a little child can, can wade out into it. And you feel that way, right? It's the Gospel of John that you, you sort of immediately turn to when you need comfort. Or when there's someone who's maybe never read the Bible, you say, where do you begin? And you send them to the Gospel of John. Yet at the same time, there's so many layers to John's Gospel that you can never peel all those layers back. You just go deeper and deeper and deeper still into the Gospel of John. Well, where we are this morning, as, as you just heard Ashley read, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. And it's at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. And one of the things about the Gospel of John is that John did not set out to write uh, a, a chronologically ordered biography, as it were, of Jesus. In fact, the first half of the Gospel of John covers about three and a half years, and that's called the Book of Signs. And the last half of the Gospel of John, from chapter 12 onward, is about a week and a half and leads us up to the cross. is heavily weighted uh, with the cross of Christ, and that's called the book of glory because the glory of Jesus is revealed in his death and his resurrection. But this first half of the Gospel of John, the book of signs, is where Jesus is performing miracle after miracle, not so we can call Ripley's Believe It or Not. It was Cornelius Van Til, the great reformed apologist, who said that's not why Jesus performed miracles, so that we'd be impressed. He wasn't performing tricks or stunts. He wasn't doing these things that we'd call Ripley's, believe it or not. He was performing miracles to affirm and confirm what he was saying about himself. And in chapter 1 of John's gospel, John has already said a lot about Jesus, that he is like none other before or since, that indeed he is God in the flesh. And and he's created all things and he's come to tabernacle or dwell among us to have intimacy with. With us, and then as you read through chapter one, uh, we we discover that as John the Baptist, says, Jesus has come as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and Jesus calls his his first disciples to himself, and then it's as if John is saying in chapter two, "Watch the signs, watch the signs, because they're going to tell you uh, who who Jesus is." And again, very very important signs uh, throughout. Now, here's the reality. There, there are seven miracles that Jesus performs, not counting his own resurrection from the grave. Uh, we see, for instance, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, or the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5, or the, the feeding of the 5,000 in, in the same, uh, just the very next chapter, chapter 6, it's sign after sign. He walks on water in the same chapter, chapter 6. He heals the man born blind in chapter 9. Or then there's the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And those are some pretty impressive miracles, healing the blind, healing the lame, raising a dead man back to life, feeding 5,000. So why does he start off with a miracle? Like his miracle right out of the gate is going to sort of establish his identity. Why does he start off with a miracle that I guess you could say relatively speaking is not as dramatic and not as out there as feeding 5,000 or bringing a dead man out of the grave? Why does he start off with with this miracle? Why, why did he choose this to be the, the, the first miracle? I mean, he was certainly capable of, of more. There were relatively fewer people who saw this miracle take place, really only a few who were going to know what he had actually done. Uh, is he just sort of warming up and, and getting started? No, actually, this miracle is programmatic. It's paradigmatic. This miracle says so much about who he is and, and, and why why he came. Um, he came to bring about new creation. Right? The, the language of John in chapter 1 is really similar to the language of Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word created all things. What is John telling us? That there is creation, and it has fallen, and Jesus has come to bring new creation. And that's what he's doing here with this miracle. He is saying, I am bringing the new wine of the new age, the new wine of the new creation, the new wine of the messianic age of redemption and, and joy and salvation. He does it at a wedding. Jesus goes to a wedding. You know, the interesting thing about weddings, weddings can be really high-pressure events, not just for mothers-in-law, not just for uh, the, the bride. Weddings can really be high-pressure events for, for ministers. Just a little bit of true confession here. Uh, one of the things that you will know if you go into ordained ministry is that there's a lot of pressure on you when you're, doing, when you're performing a wedding, Right? When you're performing a wedding, uh, you're not going to be forgiven much if you screw up much. It's, even if you screw up a little, you're not going to be quickly forgiven for it. Uh, Pastor Carter Crenshaw, who's a minister over at Weston Community Church, dear, dear friend of mine, I love, love Pastor Carter. Years ago, um, he got into a predicament. He got, in, got into a bit of a, a predicament. I got a phone call. Uh, one Saturday, and uh, it was maybe two weeks before the wedding was to take place, and I get a phone call, uh, panicked, Carter Crenshaw. You all know Carter over at West End. Carter uh, calls me up and says, David, Carter Crenshaw. I said, Carter, what's going on? He said, David, I need you. I said, what's, what's going on, man? He said, David, I need you. I need you so desperately right now. So, what's the matter, man? What's happened? He said, David, I have double booked myself for a wedding in two weeks. So what do you mean? He said, well, I've booked myself for a wedding uh, here in Nashville and a wedding in Alabama, and I've got to go to the wedding in Alabama, and I need someone to do the wedding here in Nashville for me. I said, well, Carter, do I, do I know the couple? He said, no. He said, I've done their premarital. David, I just need you to fill in. I said, Carter, I don't even know the couple. I said, but Carter, I'll do anything for you, so, so I'll do it. Now, understand, the wedding that he had double booked himself for here in Nashville was a pretty high society affair. In fact, it was going to be held at Cheekwood Mansion. That ought to tell you uh, all you need to know right there. It was a wedding at Cheekwood Mansion. Now, here's the thing. This was many years ago. You don't know these people, so just relax. But here's the deal. He said, you got to go do this wedding for me. And so I said, I agreed. I agreed to it. And I actually met the couple once before the wedding took place and got to know them a little bit. Well, the Saturday of the wedding, the Saturday of the wedding, I receive a phone call. Um, it's about, I don't know, maybe an hour and a half before the wedding. And, and I receive a phone call from Carter Crenshaw. David, Carter Crenshaw. Hey, brother, I just want to know everything's going okay and, and that, uh, that you're, you know, good for doing the wedding today. And. I said, Carter, I said, where are you, man? He said, oh, I'm in Alabama. I'm heading to the wedding that I'm doing. I said, Carter, I'm not falling for this. I'm not falling for this. The wedding's next Saturday. The next Saturday, he said, David, no, I'm not joking, man. It's today. I said, Carter, I'm not falling for this, man. You're going to pull this prank on me. I know you told me the wedding's next Saturday. I'll be there next Saturday. David, the wedding's today. I'm in Alabama. Where are you? I said, Carter, I'm in St. Louis. Now, here's the thing. I was actually driving into Cheekwood at that moment, but <laughs> it was so, it was so delicious. It was so delicious hearing him just writhe and wriggle on the other end of the phone. And so he just went into full on panic. David, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I just let him, I just let him sort of foment in that. I said, Carter, I said, here's the deal, man. I said, "Uh, I got to let you know, I'm driving, I'm pulling into Cheekwood right now. Oh, David, you are B-A-D bad. And he hung up on me. So I did the wedding. And later that night, Carter calls me up. David, Carter. Says, said, hey, man. He said, um, how'd the wedding go today? I said, well, Carter, I don't know how to tell you this. Um, I, don't know how to tell you. I said, I tried to pull that prank on you. And I said, as I was pulling in, but I said, Carter, sure enough, I was an hour late to the wedding. Oh, David. What did they do? I said, well, they, they waited for as, as long as they could. And I said, but, um, but I got there, and there was no one waiting for me, and I walked through the mansion, and they were all in the back. And keep in mind, this is the place they had an ice sculpture of a swan spitting water out in the middle of this courtyard in the back where the wedding was. This will give you a picture of what a high society event th- this was, uh, was going to be. So I said, Carter, I, said, I get there about an hour late. He said, what did you do? I said, well, i walk in, and I said, as soon as I, as soon as I can win, I said, there was a friend of the family, Carter, I said, who was a Jewish rabbi, and uh, they waited for me as long as they could, and so he got up and started conducting the wedding, and, and I said, but, but I went in, and, and I went up beside him, and I said, I let him know that, that I was actually the pastor, apologized for being late, and that I was supposed to do the wedding. I said, but Carter, he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me, he wouldn't you know, relinquish what he was doing. And, and I said, Carter, I said, brother, I've got some apologies to make. And I said, I'll meet with you. I'll meet with whomever. I said, we got into a shoving match. He said, David, how did that happen? I said, Carter, he shoved me first. I don't know. We got into a shoving match right there in front of everyone. And uh, he was just panicking, panicking. I said, Carter, I said, brother, I got you again. I, I got there right on time. There, there was no shoving match. There was none of this. And he said, David Owen Filson, you are BAD bad. Carter is so gullible with those kind of things, and it just, to to this day, it brings delight to me as if it were yesterday that this had happened. But here's the thing. Everything has to go well at a wedding. Everything has to go well at a wedding. It's it's a day in which a new family is forming, new life together is beginning, new levels of intimacy are going to be available to this this couple. Uh, It is the newness of things to which John is turning our attention in the text before us this morning. It's a wedding, and everything needs to go smoothly at this wedding, and Mary knows it. There's a predicament, and, and, and it, is a, it is a predicament and a half. There, there's no wine, uh, more wine. New wine is needed, and so she petitions Christ, and he comes and, and, and provides. Um, he provides this new wine of the new age of the covenant, uh, this eternal logos, this one who is very God of very God, the Lord of, of new creation comes. And, and so really the, the question for us this morning is do we need a new beginning? Do we need a reminder uh, that he's making all things new and he begins with us, that, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Uh, uh, Mary comes to Jesus in the worst of a predicament again. It's the third day after Jesus' encounter with with Nathaniel, and weddings were really big deals. They weren't one-hour events on a Saturday. As as high society a wedding as that that was that I participated in, uh, weddings were much bigger deals. They lasted up to a week. They were largely held at night. And by torchlight, the groom and his groomsmen would go to the home of the bride and and fetch her and and lead her out in this beautiful parade, this beautiful procession uh, to the place where the wedding would take place. And, And again, it wouldn't be an hour-long event, and they were off to their honeymoon. There was no honeymoon. Uh, they would stay there for that week, and they would reign in the village as, as king and queen, as it were, and the celebration would go morning, noon, and night all throughout the week. It was a week-long feast. It was a, it was a festival. Big deal. Nothing, nothing more important at these events than, than wine. Now, and part of it was practical because, you know, there was no refrigeration then, and so wine was a staple, but, but it was really more because of what we read in Psalm 104, verse 15. Wine makes the heart glad, and wine was central. It was crucial to joy for wedding bliss, but here the, the wine is missed. These people lived largely impoverished lives. Um, wedding celebrations Brought great joy, great levity into the life—not just of the couple, but the entire village. Great, great joy. The whole, again, the whole neighborhood would join in. The whole village would join in. And here's the thing: if you provi- if you failed to provide uh, a party that was that was at least equivalent to the one that went before, whichever wedding that was, it was a great offense. That that was not acting in hospitality and and in service to to your your neighbors. And uh, and to run out of wine was probably the worst predicament possible. To, to run out of wine uh, was the worst lack of provision you could possibly make. And, and here they had run out of wine. Maybe this is an indication that the couple and their family were of limited means. And so they, they, run, they run out of wine. This is the worst of all possible predicaments. And, and I look at my own life and, and I wonder spiritually, what do I do when the wine of joy has, has run out, right? What do I do when, when the wine of joy has has run out do i go out and try to conjure up some of my own Do I go out and try to try to find something that will satisfy me you know i go out and, and pull whatever lever i need to pull to medicate the pain or the anger or the or the loneliness um you know we read in isaiah 55 "Whoever everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your for la- uh, your labor for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, the Lord says, and, and eat that which is good. Delight yourself in the richest affair. Yet I, I just want to go around licking the salt block of my own devices, uh, begging that salt block to sort of slake my thirst, right? It has been said that true contentment is uh, found not in having everything you want but in wanting uh, everything that, that you have and I guess there's some truth to that but contentment really is a slippery thing right? you, you see it when you look at the lives of those who have uh, everything we think could possibly be had to make a person happy I, I don't know where you are uh, musically what, what you love musically but some of you probably were grieved and rightly so when I think it was in June of last year maybe July of last year uh, Chester Bennington sadly took his own life he's a lead singer of the band Lincoln Park um One of their records, Hybrid Theory, uh, is one of the most popular records uh, of of the 21st century in terms of just the sheer number of records uh, they they sold. He was an actor. He had also uh, been in the band, The Stone Temple Pilots. Some of you had that kind of post-grunge era. He had a beautiful wife. He had six uh, beautiful children. At the time of his death, he was worth, are you ready for this, $25 million. And... um, Depression, the dark night of the soul, just, just took over and sadly took his, took his own life, right? Where do you go when the wine runs out, when you find yourself facing the dark night of the soul? And here's the reality. A lot of us in here, we know very well uh, what it means to struggle with Martin Luther called Anfertun, the dark night of the soul, right? Depression's a monster, um, and, and, and so we, we just, our, our hearts break. Here's, here's the reality. Our hearts break because we are designed for gladness, right? Our hearts break because we are designed for gladness and we lick the salt block of, of our own devices, uh, begging it to, to slake our thirst. We, we pull those levers of whatever whatever medications there are uh, that, that helps kind of tone down the pain or the loneliness or the fear or the anger or the boredom, whatever, and, and none, of it, none of it satisfies. It shouldn't surprise us. Quite honestly, it shouldn't surprise us that so many of us struggle with addictions of various kinds. We were created for craving. We were designed for desire. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my traveling partners, I don't know where I'd be without C.S. Lewis. He says this, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol. That's the English word for gas. All right, so today if you have to go get gas, you can say, I'm going to get some petrol. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our souls were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way, on our own terms, without bothering about Christianity. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There simply is no such thing. But we are designed for desire. We were created to, to, to crave, and, and we were designed to desire him, to, to crave him. And we try to fill it in with, with so many things. There's a predicament here. Joy is gone. The wine is gone. There, there is no joy. The wedding's over. The feast is over. The, the, the festival is as good as, as done. And so Mary turns her worries um, into petitions here. She does it with discernment, though. Jesus' very presence here at this wedding says something of his view of marriage, that marriage would be analogous to the gospel, that this table before us is in reality an appetizer, the rehearsal dinner for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. All of this says something about about how how Jesus esteems it, but but Jesus responds to his mother when she comes and says, we're out of wine. Do something about it. he says, woman, you know, the NIV says, dear woman, try to sort of make it a little more polite. It wasn't a term of of disrespect, but, but basically he says, woman, what? What does this situation have to do with me? But get, get into Mary's heart here. You remember, back, you know, we're moving toward Advent, and, and we're going to read uh, the story. We're going to hear the stories read from Luke chapter 2 of the birth of Jesus and the incarnation. And one of the things I love in Luke chapter 2 is in verse 19, where it says Mary's just observing all of these things going on around the incarnation of Jesus, the people coming, bringing gifts, and, and all of those sorts of things, right? And it says that Mary pondered these things and treasured them in. Her heart. Here is the heart of a mother who, for some thirty years now, has been pondering and treasuring what she knows is different about her son. She's been treasuring it and pondering it, and, and so out of that discernment, she she comes to him. But but it was not Mary's place to determine when or how her son would would reveal his messianic uh, power. Remember, he is is the sovereign Lord. Um, his response is an indication. Uh, that, that her focus needs to change from him as her son to him as, as her savior. Um, it's one of the things I think about when I take my petitions to the Lord, when I take my predicaments to him, am, am I willing to, as Luther says, let God be God? Or, or is my desire to want to tell him how he is to help me in my situation? I want to sort of manage him, uh, as it were. Am I willing to let him say, here's how I'm going to meet your need, Here's how I'm going to answer you. The, the text seems to indicate that Mary, again, had some authority. Maybe, maybe she had some position here at this wedding. Maybe she was a, an assistant or, or a, a wedding coordinator, uh, as it were. We, we don't know, but she's concerned about the fact that the party's about to end. The party's about to end. The, the, the wedding feast is about to come crashing down. Jesus informs her that he is in control of himself and his power. It's his hour, his hour of revealing, uh, really, what his messianic purpose was to be, which was to come, take away our sins, to die a cruel death on the cross. His hour had not yet come, and and her response is interesting. Jesus, what, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour not yet come. Her response is simply this: Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever he tells you to do, go with him. Do whatever. Do whatever he says. Um, whatever he tells you to do. She knows that whatever he does is going to be good. It's going to be right. <laughs> Whatever he says, do it. Uh, she trusted his, his goodness and, and his wisdom. And, again, I think about my own heart. I think about the fact, as I said earlier, you know, we, we reach for those levers when the joy runs out. We reach for those levers when, when the wine runs out, as, as it were. Uh, and, and, and we pull those levers uh, to, to sort of deal with the numbness or the, the pain, the, the anger, the loneliness, um, the, the lust, the boredom, whatever the case may be, and um, we we don't like Mary say, "Okay, whatever you say, Lord, that that's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to go with you. I'm I'm, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay with you here." What does What does Jesus say? Right. This is key in turning our our worries into petitions. How often do you come to Jesus? How often do you come to him with your worries, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly, subtly or not so subtly, and expect him to perform on your terms? Um, are you like me in that way? Are you simply ever Uh, address your soul. Whatever Jesus says, that's what I want to hear. That's what I need to hear. Whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. Prayer is not so much about us informing God, but him reforming and and, and transforming us and and our perception of him. I mean, think of three situations that you're facing right now, three predicaments right now where the wine, as it were, has run out, Uh, three situations which worry is just consuming you, and and you're growing impatient uh, with the way that the Lord is performing on your behalf. What does the Lord say? Whatever he says, do it. Well, what does he say? He says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. So maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning as, as one of our guests, and you'd say, look, i I'm just sort of exploring the truth claims of Christianity. I don't know that I would um, identify as a as a Christian. What does Jesus say to me? Whatever He says, do it. Right, preacher. Whatever He says, do it. So, what does He say? And what am I to do? Come to me, all you who labor. Come, come to Jesus today. Find rest for your souls. Maybe you're, uh, maybe you're relatively young in, in the faith. Maybe you've been a believer for a few weeks or a few months, maybe a year or two, and, and you'd say, look, man, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to be a follower of Christ. Seems like since I've started following Christ, the devil has come at me with everything he's got. What does Jesus say to me? He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Maybe you're a veteran Christian. You've been Christian for years, right? Maybe you've been—that was a Jedi move right there—that I caught that just like that. Oh. Anyway, you've been—you've been a Christian for years, you know. And and, and you—you've—you've—you've you've, you've sung in the choir, you've passed out bulletins, right? You, you're in a missional community, whatever the case may be. You've been at it forever, uh, yet that old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, uh, right? That 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 was written for you, right? Robert Robertson's old hymn was written for you and about you. Ever feel that way? Uh, there's a story of Robert Robertson. He, he was in London, and he had written that hymn, um, Come Thou found of Every Blessing. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And he got on a stagecoach, and there was a woman on the stagecoach, kind of like a taxi cab, and she had a hymnal, and she was humming a familiar melody, a very familiar melody. She was humming the melody to come to a fountain, he, he, he breaks out crying and, and just sobs. And, and the lady says, well, well, dear sir, what possibly could be wrong? And he said, I know the man who once wrote that hymn, and I would give anything to feel the way I felt when then I wrote it. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God of love. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a veteran Christian. You've been following Jesus for years, but you're prone to wonder. And maybe you wondered this week. Maybe you wondered this week. And if the things that you wandered into this week were to be displayed on this screen, you would dig a hole to China trying to get out of here. You'd go straight through the floor. You would want no one to know the things you've wandered into this week. What does Jesus say to you? Right? You wandered into those things because the wine of joy just ran dry. What does Jesus say to you? He says, "I'm the Lord of the wedding." I'm the Lord of the wedding, and I want you to come to me. Yes, you, veteran Christian, long-time Christian, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. The reason you wandered, really, is because you're weary. The reason you wandered is because you're heavy laden, and you're licking the salt block of your own efforts, hoping that it will quench your thirst. So come to me, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The word learn... The word disciple is in the Greek. It means learner. Be my disciple. Learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Think about this. The one who could raise Lazarus from the grave, the, the one who is the creator of all things, whose fingertips spin the rings of Saturn is gentle and lowly in heart. The one whom death and the devil could not overcome is gentle and lowly in heart. The one who bore your sins outside the camp on a trash heap called Golgotha is gentle and lowly in heart. The one who could cast out demons and, and, and heal the blind and, and heal the lame and feed the 5,000. This one who is very God of very God. This one who stood before Joshua in chapter 5 in the Old Testament with his sword drawn and said, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. This one, this Jesus is gentle. And he's lowly in heart. He says, come to me. And we trust him, right, for the wealth of his his provisions. Jesus um, here, according to John, and see, you're this. John is an eyewitness. John is, is an eyewitness of, of these events. And, and he counted six water jars. It's interesting. He does the math. There are six water jars over there. There are six water jars. It's going to equal around 120 gallons, right? Around 120 gallons. And Jesus had them fill these jars to the brim so that there would be no doubt. That there was nothing but, but water in them at that point. And then the miracle occurs. And he takes it to the, to the master of the feast. And you have quantity and quality, both in, in abundance. And, and this is because this is what Jesus does he brings the best. He is the best because this wine is ultimately pointing to himself. He wants to give us not wine as, as wonderful as that was so that the wedding could continue. He wants to give us himself, which is why he gives us wine here, so that the wedding will go on, so that the party can continue and our joy will be full. Jonathan Edwards, another one of my traveling partners, says this. It is said that Christ is a river of water because there is such as fullness in him, so plentiful a provision for the satisfaction of the needy and longing soul. When one is extremely thirsty, though it is not a small draft of water will satisfy him, yet when he comes to a river, he finds fullness. There he may drink full drafts of water. Christ is like a river in that he has a sufficiency not only for one thirsty soul, but by supplying him, the fountain is not lessened. There is not the less afforded to those who come afterwards. A thirsty man does not sensibly lessen a river by drinking from it and quenching his thirst. Christ is like a river in another respect. A river is constantly flowing. There are fresh supplies of water coming from the fountainhead continually so that a man may live by it and be supplied with water all his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain. He is continually supplying his people, and the fountain is not spent. They who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies from him to all eternity. They may have an increase of blessedness that is new and new still and which will never come to an end. Quantity and quality. This is the way he provides for us. This is the way he he cares. Um, And here's the interpretive key to this passage. And This is interpretive key to why Jesus has this as his first miracle. What he provides later is the best. Whatever has come before him is inferior. His provision is better than what has come before. Out of the riches of what he has that we will inherit, righteousness is imputed or given to us. Notice that John says not just that there are six jars, but six stone water jars. There's no mistaking what these are about. These six stone water jars are there per rabbinic laws so that when you come to a feast, you are able to ceremonially cleanse yourself. These water jars are there for cleansing, for making yourself clean, making yourself worthy of being there at that at that feast. They are used for Jewish purificational uh, purification washings. Um, and 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 at the moment, you know the water of self. Purification, when Jesus performs this miracle, comes the new wine of the gospel, right? In other words, what Jesus is doing here, turning that water into wine, why didn't he just create wine out of nowhere? Why does he take those six stone water jars of Jewish ritual purification and turn that water, which is to be set aside for cleansing yourself, for making you clean, worthy of being at a feast, why does he turn that? ritual element into wine. Why does he do that? Because Jesus is saying, here is why I have come. Here is what I am about. I am bringing in the new age of Messiah. I am bringing in the new messianic age of the gospel. What do we read when we turn to the book of Isaiah and the gospel there? Isaiah 25, 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, Will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. The good stuff, in other words. A rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. This is not three-buck chuck. We're talking camas here that Jesus is out to make for us. In other words, we read in the prophets that when the Messianic age comes, one of the things that is going to be flowing in abundance is wine. Wine is a symbol of the joy of salvation that Jesus alone can bring. In Jeremiah, when the Messianic age comes, we are going to be radiating the goodness of the Lord as believers. Wine will flow. We will be like a well-watered garden, and we will languish no more. The prophet Hosea says that when the Messianic age comes, we will dwell beneath the shadow of the Lord. We will blossom like the vine, and our fame will be like good wine that everyone knows about. Joel, the prophet Joel, says that in that Messianic day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, right? And Amos, when, when the messianic days come, when the Messiah comes, the mountains will drip sweet wine. He will restore the fortunes of his people. We will make gardens and we will eat in abundance. What do you think Jesus is doing here at this wedding? Is he saying, look, the prophets have prophesied They promise that the Messianic age will come, and when it comes, it will drip with sweet, well-aged, refined wine. I am the reality of that, and I am declaring to you now, the Messianic age is here. Right? Jesus has come to say, I am the God of all creation, and I am fulfilling an old system that has served its purpose, and I am fulfilling it and taking it where it needs to go. You are no longer going to be cleansed by washing yourself with water. I am your cleansing. I am the wine of your joy. I am the wine of your, of your salvation. Jesus, John is... Is telling us here about not simply a physical change in the natural realm from water into wine, but a, a spiritual change in the supernatural realm. He, he's writing about the new creation, wherein our hearts are going to be made new by the, the, the giving of, of Christ's righteousness to us. Our joy will be full because he is the one who brings the wine. Of, of joy and salvation, the feast will continue. This is gospel wine transforming sinners, right? And he manifests his glory, and his disciples believed, and off they go telling others about him. But here's the reality. In order for us to drink the best wine, this this wine of, of joy and gladness, this best wine of salvation, right? It was the best wine that Jesus brought, right? The master of the feast said it, right? Usually you, you, you serve, you, you wait uh, to serve the bad wine until later, right? After, after people have gotten, gotten a taste and they think you're given just the good stuff and then their senses are dulled and then you kind of back it up. You sort of backfill it with, with the cheap stuff, right? You serve the camus first and then the, then the three-buck chuck. He said, that's not what you've done. That's not what's happened here. You saved the best until last. But here's the reality. For you and me to drink the best wine, Jesus would have to drink the bitterest wine. For us to drink this cup, He had to take down the the cup of God's wrath and drink it down to the last bitter dreg. That's why he prayed in the garden, Father, is there any way this cup can pass from me? Because he knew how bitter would be the white, hot anger of God against David Filson's sin. For David Filson to drink this new wine that only he could provide, he had to drink the bitterest wine imaginable. We, we are. We are created to crave. We are designed for desire. But in Jesus, we are welcomed to want.